This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Here are a few interesting facts regarding blood donations. Over 4.5 million American lives are saved each year by blood transfusion, and approximately 40,000 units of donated blood are used each day in the U.S. A single individual involved in a motor vehicle accident can easily require over 100 units of blood. We typically have about 10 units of blood in our body, and each donation represents about one unit. Surprisingly, only 38% of the population is eligible to donate blood, and of these eligible individuals, only 5% actually donate. As you might have guessed by now, the topic for today's podcast is blood donation and how it relates to primary care. And my guest is Dr. Justin Juskowicz from the transfusion medicine area. And Justin, is that a department or a division or part of laboratory medicine? It's a division in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology here at Mayo Clinic. All right. Justin's an expert in transfusion medicine at the Mayo Clinic. You are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. So, Justin, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. That's nice to be here. Well, let's start. I want to find out what's the status on the need for blood. Do we have an adequate supply, or is there a constant shortage or intermittent shortage? Where, where do we stand? So, coming out of the pandemic now, our blood supply nationally has pretty much stabilized. Donors are coming back in at pre-pandemic levels, and the need for blood products has roughly returned to back to pre-pandemic levels as well. And so, we do still see kind of ongoing intermittent shortages of particular blood types, but not the severe shortages we were seeing periodically over the past few years. Just highlights the need to have consistent donors coming into blood donation agencies across the nation to help meet the supply that you just, or help meet the demand that you just mentioned in in the opener. So what are the requirements an individual has to have if they want to donate blood? So in general, generally speaking, you have to be healthy and well enough to donate blood. So there is a minimum rate requirement of 110 pounds. You also, depending on the state you're in, need to be of a particular age uh, that can vary between 16, 17, or 18 years or older. And then you have to have adequate levels of hemoglobin, the red part or oxygen carrying component of your blood, so that you can safely donate for others. So in the United States, that means males have to have a hemoglobin of 13 grams per deciliter or greater, and females 12.5 grams per deciliter or greater. Okay. You mentioned age, and in some states, age is not an excluding factor, is it? There's no maximal age, but pretty much every state in the nation has a minimum age under Mm -hmm. state law. So in Minnesota, where I am, the minimum age is 16 to donate blood. As you know, I'm a geriatrician, and I recall seeing a patient who is in his mid-80s And I looked at his labs and he had an iron deficiency anemia. And Mm -hmm. that in general is not a good sign for an elderly patient. And I recall going through all the possible explanations, couldn't find any. I never assumed an 85-year-old would be eligible to donate blood. Mm. And I was literally filling out the the form for a colonoscopy. And he asked, "Hey, uh, hey, doc, does it matter if I donate blood? And he had a record number of donations for his church. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got his iron deficiency. So that's that's fascinating that you can have really a no age limit upper in uh, in some states. So what tests do you do before you accept blood to ensure that it's safe as possible? 
So before we actually collect the donor, we will do a point of care hemoglobin test to make sure we meet those thresholds that I mentioned earlier. And then after the donation, we will do an ABO type, an RHD type, because we need to label the unit with what the blood type is. And then we will do a series of infectious disease tests that as required by the Food and Drug Administration. So writ large, the federal government and the Food and Drug Administration are the ones that oversee blood donation practices in the United States, and they set the standards. And so we will test for infectious disease agents such as hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, syphilis, West Nile virus and HTLV one and two, just to name a few. And then depending on particular donor characteristics, there may be some additional testing that is done, for example, for antibodies against HLA that can cause transfusion reaction in some recipients. Uh, we may do additional testing beyond that. All right. So what would exclude a patient from donating blood? There's a lot of categories that do. When you come in to donate in the United States, there is a national donor questionnaire. It's roughly about 40 questions. And that questionnaire, as set up by the Food and Drug Administration, will screen for social behaviors that may increase your risk for acquiring one of those infectious disease entities that I mentioned earlier. And so it, depending on your answers to those questions, and we tr trust and hope that everyone comes in to donate answers those questions truthfully, the answers to those questions may lead you to not be able to donate blood. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, not having adequate levels of hemoglobin to be able to do the donation, not a being sufficient weight. Or as you're going through the process, if you have a reaction while you're donating and we can't complete the donation, then obviously that would prevent you from having successful donation that day. Sure. How about medications? Are there some that are on the list? Yes, there are. There are several, and they're not. There's often some confusion that the individual blood donation center is the one that's creating this list and how long you have to be off these medications. That medication deferral list is actually a national list published by the Food and Drug Administration. So individual blood collection agencies don't have much say in those exclusions, but they fall into a few rough buckets. So anticoagulation medication, in part because we use the plasma from the donation to help replace coagulation factors doctors and patients who need it, and partly because we're placing a needle in someone's arm and we need that bleeding to stop after the donation. If you're doing a platelet donation, then antiplatelet medications that cause the platelets not to work effectively. Obviously, we can't have people donate in those instances. And then the other broad bucket are medications that are known or associated with causing birth defects. And the reason for that is that we don't know who that blood product is going to on the other side of the process. And so we do not want donors who are on medications that can cause problems with pregnancy to donate because that donation may be going to a woman who is pregnant or potentially could be becoming pregnant in the coming days. Mm -hmm. And so those are some broad buckets. The other one I would add to the list that's been recently added, obviously, if you are taking a medication to treat HIV, you're deferred from donating. But the FDA has recently added medications they use to prevent the acquisition of HIV, the PEP and PrEP medications. Mm -hmm. And the reasons those are excluded is because they actually can cause interference in the tests we use to detect HIV in a donation and can cause false negative results. And so the FDA recently added those medications to the deferral list. As primary care providers, we often have several patients with polycythemia vera in our population. Mm -hmm. And the 
many of them just receive periodic phlebotomies to bring their blood count down. Instead of just a phlebotomy where the blood is thrown away, can they donate their blood? So PV, which is a form of myeloproliferative neoplasm, is actually exclusion criteria. Most hematologic malignancies, if you've had a history of them, you will be unable to donate in the United States. There are some centers that can that do make exceptions for childhood leukemias, but outside of that, leukemias, lymphomas, myelodysplastic syndrome, myelo, myeloproliferative neoplasms are routinely an exclusion criteria away from donating blood for other individuals. So the answer answer is usually no. Okay. And how about hemochromatosis? Kind of Yeah, it's it is but it isn't. So the concern with polycythemia vera, the theoretical concern, not that it's ever happened as far as I know from the medical literature is that since it's a neoplasm involving blood cells, that there is a small chance it could be transmitted to a recipient if one of those neoplastic blood cells went from blood product to the recipient. Hereditary hemochromatosis is an iron absorption issue where the body has a mutation that prevents the, the individual from stopping their absorption of iron. And the FDA, again, who is the one that makes all the rules, has laid out a path in which individuals with hereditary hemochromatosis can donate. But part of that path has to deal with the the therapeutic phlebotomies that you mentioned earlier. So if you are a blood collection agency, but don't do therapeutic phlebotomy clinically for a fee as a, you know, as a treatment option for patients, then there really is no issue. For those entities in which they do therapeutic phlebotomies and charge patients for it as a therapeutic procedure, that becomes an issue. And so those institutions that have that service either need to provide that service for free for everyone, whether they're going to use the blood for vote donation purposes or not, or they cannot collect individuals from hereditary hemochromatosis because the concern is that there may be an incentive if one part of your practice is charging for the phlebotomy, but you could go to the donor center and not be charged to donate for another individual, there may be an incentive there not to answer the questionnaire truthfully. And so that's the FDA's concern. So depending on where you don't donate, individuals with hereditary hemochromatosis may or may not be eligible, depending on if that blood collection agency can meet those requirements as an institution writ large or not. So, so it's not, pretty nuanced. Not a simple issue. No, it isn't. And it can cause a lot of confusion of donors and primary care providers because one agency may not be able to collect those individuals while another may be able to. Okay. So how often can a patient donate blood? Ah, it depends what they're donating. So whole blood donations, so where you a needle is placed in your arm and you collect into a bag all the blood components, per the FDA, that is every eight weeks. Collection agencies may have a longer span. The shortest interval is eight weeks. There is also a process by which we can collect only one component of the blood instead of all of it at once. That's called apheresis. Apheresis means to separate. And so we place the needle in your arm, but your blood then is processed by an apheresis machine that, that using centrifugation will separate in real time the blood components. Then we'll collect off the component that we're collecting and return the rest of the blood components back to the donor. So Depending on which blood product or blood cell or blood component we're collecting, depend then dictates how frequently you can donate. So if you're donating platelets, you can actually donate every seven days and up to 24 times in a calendar year. 
if you're donating plasma, which is the liquid protein part of the blood, then it's every 28 days. And if you're donating double red, so we use apheresis not only to collect one packed red blood cell unit, but two simultaneously, then the minimum requirements are six every 16 weeks, twice what a whole blood is. So it really depends on what you're donating, how often you can donate. And I would be remiss if you donate whole bloods every eight weeks or every 12 weeks is what we do here locally to help mitigate risks of iron deficiency that you mentioned before, you are allowed to do other donation types in between. So I'm a whole blood donor. I donate every 12 weeks here. But in between those, I can do apheresis platelet or plasma donations every seven days or every 28 days. There is a little bit of mixing and matching that is allowed as long as you don't exceed the maximal blood loss standards that have been put out there. I've had a few patients who do donate as often as they can, and I have seen some iron deficiency in those Mm -hmm. individuals. Should we be recommending they take an iron supplement if they want to donate that frequent? This is a fantastic question because we run into this all the time. And we, as transfusion physicians who are running the donor center, don't know the patient's entire history, right? Right. So it's Mm -hmm. really hard for us to make recommendations for a particular donor in a vacuum of not knowing their medical history. As a general rule, as you mentioned, frequent or repeat blood donors will over time become iron deficient. It'll first show up in their ferritin levels, which is how we measure iron levels in the blood. And then eventually, if that becomes severe enough, it'll start manifesting as an anemia or low hemoglobin or red cell levels in the blood. And so we do recommend our donors, again, in consultation with their primary care physicians to consider iron supplementation. This is the work that's been done out with Dr. Jed Gorland at the Memorial Blood Centers up in the Twin Cities here in Minnesota, looking at different iron supplementation strategies. And believe it or not, the iron that is in a multivitamin, not the gummy ones, but the ones that actually contain iron, is actually sufficient iron each day to help prevent iron deficiency in relationship to frequent blood donations. So you don't even need to have the higher dose iron supplementations in order to help it. So my kids laugh at me all the time because their dad every morning takes one of those old school Flintstones chewable vitamins (laughs) to help keep my iron and my hemoglobin Mm -hmm. levels up. That level of iron, which is certainly not the same as you see in like some of these irons, other iron supplementations, has been shown to be about as equivalent to maintaining iron stores and frequent donors as the higher doses. And then foods, obviously, would be the other thing. Certain foods are iron rich. And so using your diet to bolster your iron stores is another great way. Before you accept a patient for blood donation, you're not assessing their iron stores, are you? We are not. We assess their hemoglobin levels, but we do not test for ferritin, correct, or iron stores. All right. So let's say an individual knows they have a surgery coming up. Can they donate some blood, banking it and using it on themselves? It's another great question. This is actually, this question has been raised more and more over the last few years. Again, autologous blood donation and banking was something that became quite popular during the 1980s and then fell off in favorability during the 90s and 2000s. There's been a resurgence in interest over the last three to four years. Each blood donation agency will have its own policies. Most of them will have a process by which people can donate for themselves. The Food and Drug Administration actually has special sets of rules for the collecting, storing, and issuing of autologous blood, different hemoglobin cutoffs, different testing requirements. 
I will say as a practice, most blood collection agencies will only pursue that if it's medically indicated. And so the most common instance in which such a practice is medically indicated is when that that patient, that future patient, has developed an antibody, so a protein in their blood that will target Mm -hmm. the red blood cells of other individuals, particularly an antibody that will target most other people's red blood cells. We call that an antibody to a high incidence antigen. So these individuals will be incompatible with greater than 95%, greater than 99% of all the blood donors out there. And so then it's an inventory issue because we cannot find compatible blood for them for their upcoming surgery or for their ongoing medical needs in the outpatient setting. And so in those instances, especially for an upcoming surgery, we will advocate those individuals to donate and bank. And so those um, red blood cells are good for 42 days after they're collected. We can also freeze them for up to 10 years. And then when we thaw them, we have a 24-hour window to use them. So we can even freeze these rare units for these select patients. Most of the time, though, autologous blood donation is actually not the best course for people because it ends up depleting your own red blood cells stores ahead of the surgery. The very Mm -hmm. same red blood cells you're going to need to get through the surgery. And so individuals who end up donating ahead for themselves, especially in the scale of like a couple of weeks ahead, end up oftentimes they are more likely to actually need more transfusion support, including the unit that they gave, as opposed to if they hadn't donated in the first place. So as a general rule, we discourage it, but there's certainly clinical scenarios in which autologous donation is the only option for some of these patients. Mm -hmm. And then we heavily encourage it. And donated blood must have a lifespan or a shelf life, right? Yes. And it varies by the product type. So the packed red blood cells, so from a whole blood donation, that double red, you can keep those in the refrigerator for 42 days. Those platelets that I mentioned, which are the clotting cells in the blood, those are only good for five days at room temperature. So they have a really short span, especially considering we take a day to complete testing. And then plasma and cryoprecipitate, which are the, the protein parts of the blood, those can be frozen for a year. So depending on the product and its storage conditions, we can either have a very short shelf life or a shelf life up to a year. So if a patient is donating blood, do you save that as just blood or do you separate the various components or maybe it's both? We separate the various components. So by apheresis, we've already done that because it's being done in the machine at the Mm -hmm. time of collection. But a whole blood donation will be taken back. It will be spun in a centrifuge. The the yellow lighter plasma, the protein liquid part, will Mm -hmm. be at the top and then the packed red blood cells will be at the bottom. And then those two elements are separated. And then the plasma may go for additional manufacturing into cryoprecipitate, which is like a, a concentrated form of plasma for a very few specific type of plasma proteins. So it's used mostly for replacing fibrinogen, which is the main clotting protein in patients who have trauma or they're in surgery. So yeah, that's what happens to a whole blood unit that we collect in, in that bag that you've probably seen at like mobile blood drives. Sure. Okay. So how much blood is not really needed? Do you ever 
toss any out or is it pretty much all used? It's pretty much all used. So the wastage we have the least of due to outdating is definitely our frozen plasma products, right? Because we have a year and so we can, it's more easy for us to adjust our donation slots to meet you know deficits versus surpluses as we see the inventory over the course of a year. Red blood cells, 42 days. We do occasionally outdate them, especially individuals of some blood types that are rarer in the population, um, but almost all of those are used, especially the blood group O's, which can go to anyone. Sure. So those are first line in the in trauma or emergencies where we don't when we don't know the patient's blood type. Uh, it's very rare for those to outdate nationwide. Mm-hmm. The platelet products are the biggest challenge when it comes to inventory management and matching supply and demand. Five day outdate, one day of that is in testing. So you're always living hand to mouth. So nationwide we have like a one to two days supply. That is a lot more challenging because you have less time to play with to match up your donations with whatever your needs are at your local institution. So those are probably out of all of the blood product types. If we don't guess correctly what's coming in the door over the next three to four days, that's probably the one we locally will have the most outdates for. But again, we keep those outdates actually pretty low. We greater than 95, 97% of all the blood products we use and that we collect uh, here locally, we end up transfusing if they pass all of the requirements to be labeled. All right. Well, this is a question I have always wondered. People can go in and donate, or not donate, but actually receive money for plasma. Mm -hmm. Yes. Why has blood donation always been a donation? Well, it hasn't. So uh, funny enough, here at our own institution, we actually had paid platelet donors up until the mid 2000s. And then the whole country switched. We were one of the last places to switch, but then switched to an all volunteer blood donation system for transfusion purposes. Now the plasma that is collected by the plasma manufacturing industry, what the FDA calls source plasma, is used for manufacturing of plasma derivatives. So things like albumin, IVIG, coagulation factor replacements, uh, and a few other items. That system actually creates a whole bunch of additional tools in the clinician's toolbox to help treat patients more specifically for what deficiency they have. The United States overall, the United States and Canada with its paid plasma donation center network, actually collects about two-thirds of all the plasma that is used worldwide for making those plasma derivatives. And so they do have an important role in treating patients. When we do plasma exchanges, for example, which is replacing a patient's plasma because they have something in their plasma that's causing them harm, we'll replace with albumin. And so we depend on the plasma industry and the plasma derivatives they manufacture predominantly from those paid donors to be able to care for our patients, even in our own division. And we run a blood collection you know, center. So the volunteer system, those units are collected for transfusion purposes. And then the source plasma, the paid donors are used solely for manufacturing. So related, but different use cases, different regulatory frameworks under the FDA and managed by completely different bodies in the United States. Okay. Interesting. So given the fact that a very small percentage of eligible blood donors actually donate, what can we do as primary care clinicians to help our patients recognize the need for blood donation? 
So I think being a consistent advocate across all of your patients is really key. So as I mentioned, depending on the, the practice you are in, this whole hereditary hemochromatosis, can we collect versus not, often lead to conversations between primary care providers, asking them, asking patients with that, that diagnosis to go in and donate at their local blood donor center, and, and it can create some, some hard conversations. And then we have to have hard conversations about whether we can take those donors or not. But if primary care providers with their patients advocate, as long as they know based off their medical history that blood donation would not be harmful or potentially harmful to that particular patient, and from what you know from their labs, you think that on that particular day, they'll be able to pass the requirements. I think being a consistent advocate for blood donation is the greatest way. It's a, it is a daunting process coming in, taking time out of your busy schedule, but then coming in, answering all of these questions, some of which are kind of personal questions, and then going through the finger stick for the hemoglobin check and then doing the donation, which can take you know, depending on the apheresis procedure, maybe up to two hours is a huge commitment. And a lot of people are, are very scared about needles and stuff. So we totally get that. Having said that, as you mentioned, 5%, 10% of our population is eligible, come in and donate, and they're supporting all of the clinical needs that we have across the nation. That's a, a huge burden on a small percentage of our population to meet that need. So I think being a consistent advocate for those patients who are healthy enough and gauging their interests, and if so, recommending, you know, Based off of what we know, I know as your provider for your health, blood donation would be safe for you. And if it's something you're interested in, you should go do it because I, on the flip side, I have helped treat patients who have needed those blood products desperately and it's improved their quality of life. It's improved the length of their life because they were able to get that support from their community members, I think is the greatest way to do it. Excellent advice. Well, Justin, you've given some fascinating answers to my questions. Can you summarize our discussion, maybe two or three key points? Blood products are not something that we can create in the lab. And it is the one area of medicine in which a large swath of our community can come out and directly help provide care to fellow community members in need. And so it is the one way in which many individuals in our community can actually directly be part of a patient's care. And so if you are able to advocate through your practices, through the patients that you see in your clinics for them to come in and donate blood to help meet the ever-growing need for blood products. You'll be doing a great service, not only for your fellow man, but for the patients that you will probably be seeing and treating someday in the future. So that would be the first thing. And then the second thing is it does not matter who you donate with. Obviously, I'm interested in people who donate at my blood donor center, but it is one national network. And so a shortage across the national network affects all providers. And so it does not matter who you donate with. If you donate as a volunteer blood donor and provide that product into the pool, it's most likely going to be used locally. But there is movement of blood products across the nation to help supplement needs when needs arise across the nation. So helping the entire system helps your local providers and it helps your community. We've been discussing blood donation and how it relates to primary care with transfusion medicine specialist, Dr. Justin Juskowicz at the Mayo Clinic. Justin, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. It was great to see you again. It was a pleasure seeing you as well. Thank you so much for discussing this topic.
You can now listen to several hundred different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. We're honored to have you as a listener and hope you tune in again next week.